Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me again for another dive into the intersection of insurance and history. Once again, I'm Meredith, your host, and I have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in history. And for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. You want to know how insurance works? Believe it or not, history can help. We'll learn a little history and a little insurance, but I promise to make both entertaining. Before we do that, though, can I ask you a favor? I'm so grateful and happy that all of you have listened in on my podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm having a great time. If you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review my pod so more people will find it. And if you think someone else would enjoy listening, let them know about the pod as well. I appreciate it. Thanks again for all your support. It means a lot to me. But back to the podcast. In the 1980s, it seemed like the insurance industry was unstoppable. Interest rates were up, which meant great returns for the money insurance companies invested in the market. If you hadn't realized, a lot of insurance company profits are based on taking your premium money, investing it in the market with certain statutory caveats, and then making interest off that money before they may have to pay it out in claims. Business was booming, especially at Lloyd's of London. But something was coming, something that the industry had been ignoring for years— something that was going to change the industry forever, and bankrupt insurance companies, manufacturing companies, and even some individuals. We're talking about asbestos and how it almost destroyed Lloyd's of London forever. I want to start by talking about something that I think a lot of people, even people in insurance, don't really understand. I've spoken a lot about Lloyd's of London in my previous podcasts. If you haven't checked out the podcast episode about coffee, you definitely should, I get into a lot of detail about how Lloyd's evolved and why it was important. Basically, as insurance developed into a more formal commercial endeavor in the European and American space, an organization which had started as a group of individuals taking on maritime insurance contracts at a local London coffee shop became an insurance marketplace run by its members and the world leader in global insurance at the time, Lloyd's of London. And so if you've heard my other podcasts, you probably have the sense that Lloyd's of London was doing pretty well as of the first decades of the 20th century. And you would be right. They had great goodwill in the global insurance market and a lot of money to write insurance risks. This carried on for many more years. Sure, there were the occasional bad years, hurricanes, or other events, like the San Francisco earthquake or the sinking of the Titanic that might have caused a year in which losses were higher than normal or that resulted in higher prices for years afterwards in order to try and make up the difference. But in general, Lloyd started to look like it would continue indefinitely in a successful manner. It had somehow found the formula for unstoppable financial success. I remember thinking as a young underwriter that Lloyd's must have some advantage over insurance companies based in the United States and not knowing what that could possibly be. Most of my career has been in the non-admitted insurance market. If you don't know what that is, let's just say I was directly competing against Lloyd's for business, but in my case, I was working for an insurance company that was based in the United States. And I was working in general liability insurance, which is a line of business that offers, I think, distinct advantages to Lloyd's of London. I'm going to get a little insurancey here, but bear with me. It all circles back to asbestos, I promise. 
The major advantage is how differently United States-based companies and Lloyds handle losses from general liability claims, and specifically general liability claims. With something like property insurance, you purchase a policy from an insurance company or from Lloyds with an annual policy term, say, January 1st, 2021 to January 1st, 2022. At the end of the policy term, you generally have a pretty good idea as an insurance company if you made money or lost money because the loss has to occur during that policy term. If the building burns down January 2nd, 2021, that would be covered. If the building burns down January 2nd, 2022, not covered by the term of that policy because that term is expired. Yeah, maybe you have a loss on December 31st, 2021, right before the policy ends, and that policy expires and you aren't entirely sure what the economic impact of that loss would be. But generally speaking, when your policy ends, you can estimate your result. General liability insurance is different. These policies don't cover the loss of property you own. They cover the risk that someone who is not you is injured by your product or on your property, etc. Yes, the policy terms usually work the same. So, for example, if you're a manufacturer of a product, how about a children's toy, for example? You buy a general liability policy that starts on January 1st, 2009 and ends on January 1st, 2010. And yes, I've taken a step back in time, but there's a reason, I promise. General liability policies are based on something called an occurrence, and this is a defined term in the policy. I think I mentioned in the San Francisco episode how policy language is typically very similar across insurance companies. And in the case of general liability, I would say that 99.9% of insurance companies and Lloyd's writing general liability policies in the United States use the same form. It's a form called the CGL 0001. The form has evolved over the years as claims like asbestos have arisen. The CGL 001 form states that, quote, we will pay those sums that the insured becomes legally obligated to pay as damages because of bodily injury or property damage to which this insurance applies, unquote. And yes, bodily injury and property damage are in quotes, and there's a reason for that. Those are very specifically defined terms in the policy. In addition, that bodily injury or property damage has to be caused by an occurrence, again, a word that the policy specifically defines, and that has to occur during the policy period. So in this case, between January 1st, 2009 and January 1st, 2010. Sounds pretty cut and dried, right? Well, here's where things get a little messy. Just because an occurrence happens in the policy period and bodily injury or property damage occurs doesn't mean that the company that bought the policy or the insurance company would know about it. There's no obvious burning building here. How would either of these entities know if a third party, a child, was playing with one of their toys and was injured? Someone, somehow, has to tell them. In the case of general liability, that often means a lawsuit, but not always. As a result, there can be a significant gap between when the product was manufactured and the injury occurred. What if the toy was purchased in 2009, but the injury didn't happen until several years later, or a decade later? What if the manufacturer and the insurance company found out that someone had been injured by a toy, but that toy was purchased in 1985? There can also be a gap between when the injury happens and when it's reported. There isn't always a time limit for insurance policies as to when claims can be reported. In fact, in most cases, there is no time limit. What if they were, in fact, injured in 2009 by a toy that they purchased in 2009, but didn't bother to report it when it happened 
but decided to sue in 2019 because that injury turned out to be more serious than they had thought it was and was now threatening to affect the long-term health of the now grown-up child. You might be asking yourself, well, darn, how can an insurance company estimate the amount of loss in any given policy period when there are all these variables? In general liability, we have a rule of thumb when talking about estimating if a policy written in any year will be profitable or not. At the end of the policy period, which is after the policy has expired, you can estimate that you know about 8% of the total claims that might affect that particular policy period. Some underwriters believe it's more like 12% of claims, but hey, 8% was what I learned, and I'm sticking with it. Therefore, you won't really have a good idea whether or not the policy was profitable until about 8 to 10 years down the road, when the majority of claims, though quite possibly not all claims, will have been reported. As I said before, in most general liability policies, there's no time limit on when claims can be reported. So if I write a general liability insurance policy, I really don't know if I made the insurance company money or lost the money until 10 years or more after the policy has expired. That's a lot of long-term pressure. Though to be honest, for me, that was one of the many reasons I loved writing general liability policies. You just never knew what was going to happen, and I liked that. It meant for me that it was always interesting. But for insurance companies who are trying to figure out their profits for a particular year, it's a challenge. They have to figure out how to estimate the amount of money they have to set aside to pay those claims eventually, what's called IBNR, incurred but not reported. Incurred refers to injuries that have happened during the policy period. Not reported, well, that means the insurance company has no knowledge of them yet. Make sense? If so, congratulations, because for some reason, many insurance people still don't get what this term means. This IBNR can be a very big financial burden for an insurance company. Yeah, I know they have it tough. Bear with me. Having to hold on to that money for a long period of time can be a problem. It can impede growth. It can make an insurance company look less profitable. If that money is tied up waiting for claims that haven't been reported yet and might not ever be reported, they can't use it for other things. Insurance companies have to have a certain amount of available money in the bank to be able to legally write insurance policies. If all their money is tied up in IBNR, then maybe they can't write more insurance policies. And this means maybe there are people who want insurance who can't get it, or can only get insurance at a price that is more expensive than they can afford because there are fewer insurance companies around with money to write insurance. Lloyds, however, found a clever way to offload that IBNR, and as a result, it does make the losses look better for their members. This idea didn't just spring from the heads of the Lloyds members. As you know, Lloyds started out as a group of merchants writing policies for each other to cover the potential losses from ocean marine voyages. The accounting system they used was based on their business of transacting merchant sea voyages, and they just applied that to their insurance venture as well. So as a result of this accounting decision, which I am greatly simplifying here, a Lloyd's syndicate takes all of their general liability policies, and they do this for other types of insurance too, not just GL, from a particular year, say those 2009-2010 policies, and sells them off to another insurance company, usually another syndicate within Lloyd's. This is called reinsurance to close, RTC. Take that IBNR off our hands. We will literally pay you to take it off our hands. And then that other company can take over that potential exposure going forward. If the buyer of these policies gambles wisely, they'll make money because the amount of money they received for these policies is less than the amount of losses that are reported after they assume the responsibility for managing the losses of those policies. 
But it's also possible there will be more losses than the amount of money they received to assume responsibility of those policies, and in that case the buyer loses money. But either way, for the original writer of those policies, those policies aren't on their books anymore. They no longer have to figure out and hold on to funds to cover that IBNR. That makes that member, that syndicate, that original writer of those policies, look a lot better financially than a company, like a U.S.-based insurance company, who has to hold on to that IBNR for many years. Remember that Lloyd's isn't an insurance company. It's more like a marketplace made up of members. Walter Ferrand, who was a crier at Lloyd's in the 19th century, basically, he was a guy who yelled the names of underwriters that brokers were looking for, like, Hey, Cuthbert Heath, Willis Faber wants to talk to you, which is, I think, hilarious. Walter Ferrand is credited with this quote, which I think is a great summary of Lloyd's. Individually, madam, we are underwriters. Collectively, we are Lloyd's. Generally speaking, Lloyd's is made up of something called syndicates. This is a relatively small insurance organization that consists of an underwriter who is writing on behalf of individual investors, actual people we call names. That's names with a capital N. Or at least this is the way it used to work. These days, post-asbestos, many syndicates are owned by insurance companies who took the place of those individual members or names. But back in the 1980s, this wasn't the case. Lloyd's was made up of many syndicates, run by individual underwriters who wrote insurance, and the insurance was guaranteed by those individual investors or names. Names had unlimited liability. Let me say that again. Names, individuals who were putting up money to invest in these syndicates so that the syndicates had the financial ability to write insurance, had unlimited liability. If the pool of money that the syndicate had to write insurance ran out because the losses were higher than the amount of money they had in the pool, the names were responsible for paying the difference. Sometimes underwriters were also names, which would become a major problem down the road. So now you have two issues. First, general liability has what we call a long tail, meaning that you don't know about all the losses that happened in a particular policy year until a long time after the policy has expired. Second, at Lloyd's, you have a lot of individual people, most of whom have no real knowledge of how insurance works, but are just investors, like many of us invest in the stock market. And these individual people are putting up unlimited liability in the case of losses that exceed the pool of money the individual syndicates may have to pay losses. But, you say, they get rid of those general liability policies and unload their IBNR a few years after the policy expires. So really, as long as the policy doesn't have a lot of reported losses until year four or five after it's expired, the name should be okay, right? Well, what if the original writer of those policies couldn't get rid of those expired policies because the claims you already had were so financially damaging, no one would take those policies off you no matter what price you were willing to pay? And frankly, who do you think were taking on all those old policies? Other syndicates, which were backed by names. But policies have limits, right? I mean, the policy isn't unlimited. A manufacturing company, for example, would pay for a particular amount of insurance that meets their specific need, right? So if you write a policy with a million-dollar general liability limit, that's the most you would pay. Well, not really, but kind of, but we can get into that another time when we talk about how legal fees are typically not included in that million-dollar limit. Well, that's all well and good, but a lot of policies prior to 1970 did not have what we call an aggregate limit, which is the maximum amount a policy would pay out. And maybe you weren't writing just a million-dollar limit. You were writing what we call an excess policy, 
which might have a limit of 2 million or 5 million or 10 million. But what if, just what if, the losses you were talking about were so long tail that the courts had decided that the occurrence that caused the bodily injury happened in multiple years, that every year for the past 30 or 40 years was a year in which the injury happened, that every year for the past 30 or 40 years where you wrote an insurance policy was now activated and needed to respond to claims. And if you were those syndicates who had purchased all those old years, you are now sitting on a situation where every single general liability policy for a particular manufacturer for 40 years was looking like it was going to be a total loss. This is exactly what happened with asbestos and with Lloyd's. I think everybody knows what asbestos is, right? Or at least they know it's bad. Maybe you've seen the ads on daytime TV for class action lawsuits or for lawyers who will get you cash fast, or you've heard the word mesothelioma. Maybe you're like me and you live in a house built before 1970. Don't pull up that original floor tile, the contractor told me. Could be asbestos. Asbestos has been around forever. I mean, it's a mineral. It's not something that people made. It's just in the ground. And it's been used forever. It's naturally fire-resistant, and it's been used by people even as far back as the Stone Age. There are numerous references in Greek writings about using it for lots of things, even blankets. Why wash a blanket when you can just clean it by throwing it into the fire? The asbestos meant the blanket wouldn't burn, but all the dirt and gross stuff would burn off. In the U.S., it became an extremely useful material in a number of industries after about 1870, when people figured out how to mine it in quantity. There were a number of large asbestos deposits that could be mined in the U.S. and in Canada, as well as all over the world. Asbestos was a great insulator. It kept brake pads on those newfangled cars from burning out from the friction caused by the brake pads doing their jobs. It was used as fireproofing material in all kinds of things, particularly construction materials, from tile to drywall to roofing and siding products. It was great in factories as it reduced the risk of fire and in manufacturing. In World War II, it was considered a critical war material by the War Production Board, and it was used in gas masks, fireproof gloves for gunners, shipbuilding, all kinds of things. Not surprisingly, the U.S. military has estimated that almost as many military personnel were killed from asbestos in World War II than by the enemy. Okay, and now you're probably completely paranoid about everything around you. Just take a breath, okay? It was pretty obvious, even very early on, like, say, ancient Greece, that asbestos had some adverse side effects. Lung problems are the most obvious, and they were obvious even back then. There are four types of fibers in asbestos that can cause damage. And note that for a long time, the U.S. government only recognized three of these fibers, saying that the fourth was not cancer-causing. There's crystyle, which is the most commonly used type of asbestos. Then there's amosite and crocidolite. Finally, there's the fourth type of asbestos, the one that wasn't recognized for years, tremolite. They're all these little microscopic fibers that can be inhaled, and get into your lungs. Once there, they burrow into your lungs and they cause diseases. Two diseases, asbestosis and mesothelioma, are specific to asbestos exposure. Asbestosis is a chronic respiratory disease caused by the asbestos fibers, and mesothelioma is a rare cancer. But exposure to asbestos can also cause a host of other types of respiratory diseases and cancers. 
But the advantages of using asbestos outweighed the disadvantages for a long time. By the late 19th century, doctors had documented that people who had been exposed to a lot of asbestos by working in asbestos mines had some serious health problems. But usually by the time those health issues were identified, the people who had those health problems died pretty soon afterwards. Notwithstanding the obvious fatality rate of people who were found to have asbestos-related disease, this didn't seem to sound the alarm like you might have expected. Even as early as 1918, insurance companies, particularly life insurance companies, knew that insuring people who worked around asbestos was generally a bad idea. A U.S. Commerce Department commissioned study called The Mortality from Respiratory Diseases in Dusty Trades, written by a Prudential Insurance employee, stated that in the practice of American and Canadian life insurance companies, asbestos workers are generally declined on account of the assumed health injurious conditions of the industry. I'm reminded of the cigarette industry a lot here. If you know anything about the litigation against that industry in the last 20 years, you probably know that the cigarette companies had done a lot of research themselves internally and basically knew that cigarettes were harmful but didn't bother to share that information with the public. It was very similar with asbestos. John's Manville, which was the largest asbestos-producing company in the United States for many years, had done studies as far back as the 1930s that demonstrated quite clearly that asbestos was dangerous for workers. Owens Corning, another large asbestos manufacturer, also had commissioned studies that documented how asbestos exposure was dangerous to workers. And yet, very little was done about it, and nothing was released to the public or to those very same workers who were exposed. There's a fantastic book I read for this podcast called An Air That Kills by Andrew Schneider and David McCumber. It's not about insurance, but it is about asbestos, and I can highly recommend it. This book was about a town called Libby, Montana, and how the actions of one asbestos manufacturer affected the entire town. But there's some great stuff about how the asbestos manufacturing community downplayed or outright didn't care about the danger of asbestos. The book references some court documents that recount a 1943 discussion between the president of Johns Manville at the time and another asbestos company's leadership. He told these managers that they were, quote, a bunch of fools for notifying employees who had asbestosis. One of the managers replied, do you mean to tell me you would have let them work until they dropped dead? And the response was apparently, yeah, we save a lot of money that way. Ugh, I can go on and on about how these companies covered up the dangers of asbestos, but you get the picture. One of the challenges with asbestos exposure, though, did work to the advantage of all those asbestos companies, and it's also the reason that it took until the late 1970s and 1980s for asbestos claims to explode in size and number. Asbestos-related diseases can take decades to appear. Let's say you were an asbestos worker during World War II. You might not actually show signs of disease until 30 or 40 years later in the 1970s or 1980s. As I mentioned, while asbestos manufacturing companies had done internal studies about the danger of asbestos, there really hadn't been any large-scale public studies done, and it was pretty clear that either doctors who saw patients with asbestos-related diseases weren't making the connection. Maybe they assumed it was tobacco-related lung disease because everybody smoked back then. Or maybe they had some relationship with the asbestos manufacturers and didn't want to rock the boat. But that was all about to end when one doctor named Irving Selikoff sounded the alarm. He was a physician at Mount Sinai in Brooklyn in the 1950s and was a very successful researcher 
He had made great progress in treating tuberculosis, for example, but he still worked as a doctor, and his clinic was near a company called Union Asbestos and Rubber Company. Not surprisingly, he began to see patients with breathing issues. Now, mind you, asbestosis and mesothelioma at this time were not well-known diseases, and most people wouldn't have even thought of them. If somebody had breathing problems, most of the time that would be attributed to smoking. Again, everybody smoked back then, like something like 80% of men in the 1950s smoked. After 14 of his 15 patients with breathing issues died, he decided to start researching asbestos workers at Union Asbestos and Rubber. He eventually evaluated almost 1,000 all on his own, and what he found was heartbreaking. The employees had lung cancer at seven times the rate of the normal population, along with high risks of other cancers and breathing issues. When he did autopsies of those people who had died of lung-related or breathing diseases, he found the lungs full of asbestos fibers. Not surprisingly, the asbestos manufacturing community pointedly ignored him, but he eventually gathered enough additional research to publish an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1964 that was so damning that it changed the medical community forever. Suddenly, asbestos was a major concern. In an internal memo written by an asbestos manufacturer referring to a presentation the doctor had made in 1969, quote, Selikoff leveled very serious charges about the definite danger created by the use of sprayed fiber fireproofing. By the use of charts, he outlined the medical facts of the incidence of asbestosis, lung cancer, and rare cancers of the chest wall and lining of the stomach among asbestos workers. He then turned to sprayed fiber fireproofing in New York, showing the unchecked snow throughout the downtown area. Special note was made of the World Trade Center. Selikoff stated they estimated 100 tons of fiber will be airborne in New York from this job. Not one man spraying fiber today will be alive in 20 years. The officials of the international unions were there along with contractors, and I know it landed like a bomb, unquote. Yep, the World Trade Center. Asbestos, like the floor tiles in my late 1960s house that might be asbestos-related, poses very little risk if it's not disturbed once it's wherever it's been placed. But stir it up, say, due to a building collapse, and all those fibers are back in the air waiting to get into your lungs. So now you know there were many people in the United States who had worked at asbestos manufacturing plants, or around asbestos as it was being added to manufactured products like drywall or even oven mitts, or were working with asbestos used in their particular occupation, spraying fireproofing, insulating attics, working with automobiles, or in a host of other jobs. The exposure to asbestos varied, of course, but clearly there were people who were at risk, and since Selikoff had taken on the entire industry publicly, both doctors and their patients were on the lookout. And once asbestos-related disease was found, they were facing a death sentence. It's only natural that lawsuits would follow. Obviously, there were people suffering from asbestos-related diseases prior to the tidal wave of legal claims in the 1980s, but there were some very specific issues that reduced the chances of a successful lawsuit or insurance claim before the late 1970s. First, if you were an employee who developed asbestos-related disease and you were still working, you likely filed a workers' compensation claim. 
I haven't talked too much about workers' compensation yet on the podcast, but it's enough to know for the purposes of my discussion today that the workers' compensation system is an insurance program run by individual states that was set up to provide the exclusive remedy for injuries suffered during the course of employment. I want to highlight this term, exclusive remedy, because it sounds sort of lawyer-y and it's a pretty important term for workers' compensation insurance. I'm going to quote an official definition here, quote, Exclusive remedy is a component of workers' compensation that bars employees injured on the job from making a liability claim against their employers. The benefits provided under workers' compensation are the sole remedy available to injured employees, This idea of making workers' compensation the only way an employee could get compensation or benefits after being injured on the job was deliberately done to avoid lawsuits against employers, And by accepting workers' compensation benefits, which are paid out based on actual medical bills and a certain percentage of an employee's wages, you waive your right to sue the company. Most of the time, there are exceptions and ways to get around it, some of which I'm going to discuss in a second. Workers' compensation claims aren't public record like lawsuits are, and the worker doesn't have to prove the company was negligent to receive compensation, so it's a very quiet way of resolving claims. But workers' compensation isn't something that can be obtained retroactively. If you don't work at that company anymore, good luck. You might be able to get something, but only if you left within the past 30 days and be prepared for a fight. It's pretty common for a company to try and prove that your injury wasn't from employment with their organization, or even sometimes that you aren't really injured. Also, if you were potentially exposed to asbestos at another company before you came to your current company, good luck. It was really a system meant for paying for broken bones and lost fingers, not to deal with a long-term disease prognosis. And with asbestos, obviously, it was a problem. Even with workers' compensation, the occasional lawsuit did break through, though most went nowhere until the 1970s, when one case in particular, and a change in the legal definition of something called strict liability, blew everything wide open. Basically, in 1965, the American Law Institute, which is a nonprofit independent organization, published an updated version of something called the Restatement of Torts. Let's call the Restatement of Torts a dictionary of legal stuff, shall we? It's not the best simplification, but it works. This dictionary is a highly respected document that courts and lawyers often refer to if they have questions about the law, especially laws and concepts that are based on precedent or decisions about law that were made in the past. This dictionary specifically is concerned with something called tort. A tort is defined as, quote, a civil wrong other than breach of contract for which a remedy may be obtained, usually in the form of damages, unquote. So being injured on the job, that's definitely a tort because it's not a crime under U.S. law, at least not what we're talking about today. And it's something that can be resolved if the employer pays money, a.k.a. a remedy, to the employee. So basically exactly what we've been talking about all this time. This restatement of torts included an updated definition of something called strict liability. Regular liability, from a legal standpoint, requires that the injured party, the plaintiff, prove that the defendant caused the injury either deliberately or because of their negligence. If you fall down the stairs because the property owner didn't clean up a puddle they knew was there, that's liability. If a fan falls off the ceiling of a supermarket and hits you in the head because it wasn't properly attached to the ceiling, again, liability. 
P.S. This actually happened on an insurance policy I wrote, and frankly, I couldn't agree more the insurance company should pay out for the screw-up on the part of the grocery store. At least the guy was okay in the end. Strict liability is a little different. You don't have to prove negligence, and it's mostly used for product liability. So all you have to do is prove that the product is inherently dangerous, and you're good. Does anyone remember lawn jarts? I think that's a good example of inherently dangerous. But what is inherently dangerous, it's pretty wide. The restatement of torts basically added that a product could be considered unreasonably dangerous if it didn't carry adequate warnings of foreseeable dangers associated with it. So basically what they were saying is that first, the manufacturer is the expert on the danger of a particular product, and second, it's their responsibility to inform the public of any particular danger that the product may cause. I always think of the craziest warnings that you read on home products, you know the ones, where you think, why would anyone even think to do that with this product? Well, first of all, see that strict liability thing I just talked about, and secondly, I guarantee that someone has done that and then sued the company about it. The first case to really test this new definition of strict liability was called Borel v. Fiberboard Paper Products Corporation in 1973. Mr. Borel had worked for 33 years installing insulation in various shipyards in Texas, and most of those insulation products included asbestos. He had filed a workers' compensation claim when he was diagnosed with both asbestosis and mesothelioma with his current employer, and workers' compensation had paid him about eight grand in lost wages and about five grand in medical costs. Yeah, it was 1973, but that still wasn't a ton of money. But obviously he was concerned about his long-term medical prognosis and the accompanying costs. And the lawyer he discussed this with, one Ward Stevenson, was both extremely savvy and had also litigated asbestos claims in the past. So instead of suing Borel's current employer, where they would have run up against this idea of workers' compensation being the exclusive remedy for injuries due to employment, the lawyer targeted all the manufacturers of the asbestos insulation Borel had installed over the years. Aha! This made all the difference. The initial lawsuit was found in favor of Borel, specifically because Stevenson had successfully argued that this revised definition of strict liability applied. Stevenson argued that asbestos was inherently dangerous, that manufacturing companies knew it, and that they had a responsibility to inform people like Borel of the dangers of their product, which of course they did not. And so these companies could be found liable for Borel's injuries due to the doctrine of strict liability. The verdict was something like 80k originally, which was eventually reduced to $35,000. Stevenson was a contingency lawyer, meaning he fronted the financial costs of the lawsuit in agreement for something like 30 to 40% or so of the total settlement, if there was one. Morell had already passed away before the case even went to court, but it's safe to say his widow didn't get much money in the end. This probably wasn't helped by the fact that the case was appealed all the way to the United States Supreme Court the defendant's lawyers, and insurance companies, rightly understanding the potential that this legal verdict portended of more cases, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case, which meant that the verdict and the interpretation of strict liability stood. And then, not surprisingly, came the deluge. It started as a trickle. For example, in the case of a company like Johns Manville, they received notice of 159 asbestos-related suits against their company in 1976 just three years after Burrell was initially decided. 
By 1978, 792 suits. By 1982, 6,000 suits. And they were just one of many companies being sued for asbestos-related diseases. Once lawsuits started to go forward, plaintiffs' lawyers started asking for documents from the asbestos companies through a legal process called discovery. And this resulted in so much damaging information being released about what the asbestos companies knew about the danger of asbestos and how they had kept it hidden for so long. Things were looking worse and worse, and it showed in the number of lawsuits. By 2005, 730,000 plaintiffs had filed personal injury claims against 8,400 entities that mined, manufactured, or were in some way related to asbestos use. And if anyone has an updated number, please let me know, because there are still lawsuits being filed today. 2005 was not the end. These lawsuits included some innocuous-seeming defendants like hardware stores and home stores, which sold products that contained asbestos, even banks that had provided financing to property developers who had used asbestos-containing building products in their buildings. In many cases, the lawsuits named many, many different companies. They threw a wide net, hoping that someone would be caught in it. Some lawyers saw that this asbestos thing could be an absolute goldmine for legal fees, especially if you were a contingency lawyer. Remember that a contingency lawyer fronts all the costs of a lawsuit on behalf of a plaintiff, and then, if the suit is successful, takes a percentage of the final settlement. This can be a really advantageous setup for people who don't have a lot of money to take on a corporation, but have a solid case, like Mr. Burrell. But on the other hand, it can also encourage some very bad behavior on the part of certain lawyers. Some law firms would set up mobile testing sites that did lung x-rays for concerned citizens, some who may have had documentable asbestos exposure, but then again, that might also include people who are just concerned. One article I read called them the worried well. I don't know if that's considered a technical term, but I like it here. The lawyers could then sign a contingency contract with anyone who showed any kind of lung shadow on their x-rays, which could mean a lot of things and could also mean absolutely nothing. And then the lawyers could sit on the potential lawsuit until it was worth pursuing or file right away. But generally speaking, if you did receive some kind of settlement, part of accepting the money meant that you signed away your rights to any further suits. That could be a problem if the shadow on your lungs turned out to be severe years later. But a lot of people saw it as a quick buck right now. One worker who had shown up to be tested at one of these mobile sites said that the lawyer said I could get ten dollars or $12,000 if the shadow is big enough, and I know just the fishing boat I'd buy with it. When asked about his potential asbestos exposure, he said he'd never worked with it, but the lawyers say it's all over the place, so I was probably exposed to it. So now you have all these lawsuits, which include some people who are actively suffering and dying from asbestos-related disease, and some people who are ill, but not severely, and some people who have exposure, but no disease yet, and some people who maybe have no exposure at all, but a lawyer encouraged them to join the suit, and besides, it's in everything, right? There were many attempts to consolidate individual lawsuits into more powerful class action or multi-district litigation lawsuits, but for a number of reasons, not the least of which were two Supreme Court cases that failed in the 90s. That never took off, and a lot of people were left on their own to fight it out in the courts. Not surprisingly, the money didn't always go to the people who were most affected. And in some cases, the companies responsible did their best to remove themselves from the equation entirely. The asbestos manufacturing and mining companies themselves tended to go into bankruptcy. 
Johns Manville did this first in 1982 after a court case called Cabot v. Johns Manville was found in favor of the plaintiff to the tune of $2.3 million in compensatory damages and $1.5 million in punitive damages. We can't know the final settlement of this claim, but just remember that what the courts say is owed and what is eventually paid out are usually completely different numbers, with the final payout being often quite significantly reduced. And remember, by 1982, they were facing down almost 6,000 asbestos-related lawsuits. This was the largest bankruptcy in the United States at the time. Declaring bankruptcy allowed Johns Manville to reorganize, put money in a fund to pay for current and future asbestos claims, and then re-emerge from bankruptcy having shed any responsibility for the asbestos claims going forward. The trust they created for asbestos-related lawsuits against Johns Manville is $2.5 billion over a certain number of years. The trust is funded by scheduled payments over time. This is now seen as incredibly underfunded for the actual need. In fact, the fund has had to halt payments twice since it was established because it had run out of money entirely and has significantly reduced the amounts paid out to claimants as the years have gone by. As of 1998, claimants get about 5% of their total claim paid out and no money at all unless they fit a certain threshold of injury. It was a darned good deal for Johns Manville and a not-so-great, you might even say terrible, deal for everyone else. Johns Manville went on to be a profitable business now that it had shed all those legal responsibilities. 2021 annual revenues for Johns Manville were in the range of $500 million. Insurance, of course, was left holding the bag, keeping in mind, too, that for companies like Johns Manville, who went into bankruptcy and established these asbestos trusts, the insurance companies contributed quite a bit of money into those funds. It wasn't just Johns Manville's money. For example, the first payments into the Johns Manville Trust included $687 million in payments from Manville's insurance companies, and just $155 million in payments from Manville. It's safe to say that the insurance companies were operating at a significant, oh, let's just call it catastrophic, loss from their insurance gamble on Johns Manville. And this tactic just continued to repeat itself. More than half of the 25 largest U.S.-based asbestos manufacturers filed for bankruptcy protection before the end of the 90s. For the companies that didn't or couldn't just take the route of Johns Manville by declaring bankruptcy and the insurance companies that insured those companies, it was a complicated mess, starting with the changes in the general liability form over time and then complicated by the court's interpretation of the words occurrence and something we call the trigger, which is the event that occurs that activates the policy. This particular topic of trigger and how it works with the general liability policy as respects asbestos, is wickedly complicated and involves four different theories of trigger. Exposure, manifestation, continuous trigger, and injury in fact. Talking about it here would take an hour and make your head explode, but to sum up how it all applied to asbestos, the courts struggled mightily with how to apply the general liability policy to something like asbestos, where there was exposure over time. No one instant of injury in the same way a broken bone or a slip and fall would have, for example, and where the true scope of one individual's injury could not be known for many years. If an occurrence was the moment when bodily injury and property damage happened, did that mean that the first occurrence of asbestos exposure was when the bodily injury happened? 
One exposure to asbestos is generally not enough to cause significant disease, though. Should it be the point at which they had been exposed to enough asbestos that disease was likely or absolute? And when exactly is that? Or was it fairer to say that the occurrence happened when the person was actually diagnosed with asbestos-related injuries? Would that include minor injuries or major ones? And then, what if a minor injury was determined to be the moment of occurrence, but later on the person developed asbestosis, which is a more severe injury? How was the policy supposed to be applied if the insured both manufactured asbestos and manufactured products containing asbestos. Were those considered two different things? In terms of who would take the financial burden of the money owed to someone who had asbestos-related injuries, was it really fair to the insurance companies and the insured party to lock them into only one insurance policy, which would have only one limit, say a million dollars? Or was it more fair to spread the financial burden across many years and many insurance policies? which might mean less money paid out by any one individual insurance company and more money paid to the injured party as a result. What about if there was a year when there was no insurance coverage at all, but the other years before and after had insurance coverage? I mentioned earlier that the insurance policy that is used for most general liability policies is called the CGL0001. This policy form has evolved over the years and in some ways quite significantly. And since some of these claims for injury went back to the 1940s, you were dealing with a lot of different policies, maybe 40 or 50 different insurance policies, each with an annual term. In the original CGL001 form created in 1943, that was the first standard form. The word occurrence wasn't even used. They used the word accident, which was not defined. And if you've picked up anything in my discussion of policy wording, please know that if a term is not defined, you are in dangerous territory because you are letting the courts define it for you. In 1966, the form was changed and the word occurrence replaced the word accident. Occurrence was defined in the form, but the definition was a little vaguer than it would be 20 years later when the asbestos claims started rolling in in earnest. And until 1986, there was no aggregate limit in the GL form. That means that the insurance policy could pay its per-occurrence limit out multiple times without a maximum cap. So in cases when the courts decided that every policy since, say, 1945 should pay out on a particular insured, how do you best determine how that works when the policies are so different over time? There was no easy answer to any of these questions, and as a result, each state tended to go its own way in determining how insurers would pay out for these claims, or when insurance wasn't responsible and the company being sued would have to pay on their own. Generally speaking, the courts really did their best to find insurance coverage when they could. But whether or not that was fair to the insurance companies is, well, in some cases it was decidedly not fair or the intent of the policy. As I mentioned previously, this was complicated by how old some of these policies were, and in some cases there were no copies that could be found. Quick story. Many years ago, I was working in an insurance company that had been around in some shape or form for almost 100 years. We received notice from the claims department that there was a potential claim on a policy that had been written in the 1980s. I seem to remember it was asbestos, but it was a long time ago and I could be mistaken. It could have been pollution-related, which, by the way, is an exposure that has a lot of the same issues that we've talked about here. It turned out that policy, having been written in the 1980s, wasn't in the computer system, other than a notation that it existed. 
we would need to request the original policy file, which was stored in a facility off-site. After we received the box, we opened the policy. Does anyone remember the slick, shiny mimeograph paper we used to use back in the 80s to make photocopies and print things? Well, that's what had been used to print out the forms on this policy file. Anyone remember how well that mimeograph paper worked? Let's just say there was a crowd of us around the policy file folder looking at completely blank pages. The ink had faded into nothingness. I admit to thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not responsible for this mess. While technically in these types of cases where a policy is very old, the courts have placed the burden of proving that policies exist on the insured and not the insurance company. But when you get into the decades where computers weren't regularly in use, it becomes a major problem. Not surprisingly, the issue of missing policies wasn't just a U.S. problem. It was a Lloyd's problem as well. I am convinced, based on my personal experience, that many syndicates at Lloyd's do not always have the best handle on what they've written. There are definitely companies in the U.S. with the same problem, too. The way that policies are written at Lloyd's, especially before the advent of computers, tended to exacerbate the problem. For example, a company that wants insurance approaches an insurance broker and asks them to help set up an insurance program for their company. Maybe this broker decides that, based on the risk, they would like to approach a syndicate at Lloyd's for coverage. More typically, especially for the policies we're talking about involving asbestos, the insurance broker would approach a U.S.-based insurance company and ask them to provide the primary general liability policy or the first million dollars in insurance coverage. Once that's decided, the broker would approach the underwriters at various syndicates at Lloyd's looking for excess coverage. Excess coverage is additional insurance policy limits that sit above the first million dollar primary limit. Think of it as a ladder. The first layer, the primary, is the first rung and the part of the ladder that touches the ground. In order to go up the ladder, you have to start with that rung. Then you step to the next rung to go higher. In that case, the next rung would be the first excess policy. Make sense? So if a claim exceeded the million-dollar limit of the primary layer, say it was $3 million, and the claim was covered by both the primary and the excess policies, the primary policy would pay out a million dollars, and the excess policy would pay out the next $2 million for a total of $3 million. Think of the excess as stacking on top of the primary. Sometimes you'll hear these excess policies called umbrella policies, but there are major differences between umbrella policies and excess policies, which I won't get into here. I'm just going to use the term excess for now to describe a limit of insurance that is in excess of a primary limit of insurance. And like a ladder, insurance towers can have many rungs going up just about as high in the sky as you need them to. In the case of the types of policies we're talking about here, that excess limit, the $2 million that's in excess of the primary $1 million, was often shared by several different Lloyd's syndicates. It was a way to spread the risk. The first syndicate to agree to provide part of the excess layer was called the leader, and other syndicates would be the followers, and each would agree to provide a certain percent of that excess limit for a certain percentage of the premium. You could have many, many different followers on any one policy, and a lot of times the decision to participate on a particular policy seemed to be a handshake and a cursory glimpse at the risk and your knowledge that the broker and the leader were both guys, and they were usually guys, that you liked and trusted so great. It was, and some ways still is, the ultimate boys club. 
You will often hear about the term subscription when talking about Lloyd's, and this term refers to the group of different syndicates who participate on an insurance policy the way I've described above. After the slip was fully subscribed, the broker had obtained enough signatures from different syndicates to provide the limit that the insured wanted to buy. Then each individual participating syndicate had to get a copy of the slip, which showed who participated and what percentage and how much money you owed. So hopefully someone would get you that. But you were already on to the next thing, and from what I've read and personally experienced, maybe careful record-keeping didn't always get done. I'd like to think that my experience was unusual, but I don't know. Those of us who underwrite policies of any size in the United States are usually amazed at how Lloyd's works. The idea of seeing a document, and I'm assuming that the slip is a page or two max, and signing off on that document to agree to provide coverage on an insurance risk on the same day sometimes even the same hour, is so far from the experience of most U.S. underwriters, it just might not even be possible to comprehend. Now, mind you, Lloyd's does write a lot of small policies, which often require less underwriting, but they also write big companies, too. For an underwriter in the United States trying to decide, analyze, and document whether to write primary GL or excess on a company of any size, say something in the largest 5,000 U.S. companies, it's like writing a term paper in terms of length and can take a week or more, involve multiple sign-offs and outside input, even with information provided by the broker. Using a two-page document to decide? Unheard of. Not knowing what policies you had would be a problem, and also not knowing how any particular state was going to determine the occurrence trigger was another, as in the case of asbestos. But Lloyd's had an even bigger problem that asbestos was going to shine a bright light on. They had a problem with names. Names, with a capital N, had always been part of Lloyd's. Originally, when Lloyd's started, it was simply merchants writing insurance for other merchants, individuals creating their own contracts with other individuals. Eventually, a merchant who was writing these contracts might bring in a friend or two who wanted to invest and had the cash, but not the know-how. And in that case, the merchant would eventually become the underwriter, and the investor would eventually become a name. There were two types of names by the early 20th century. External names who were investors with no involvement at Lloyd's other than their financial investment, and a much smaller group of what we can call working names who were people who invested at Lloyd's, but also worked at Lloyd's in some capacity. In the late 19th century, most underwriters at Lloyd's were names on their own syndicates, and they usually had one or two additional names that provided financial investment on that syndicate. So when they underwrote risks, if they made money, the profits went to the underwriter and those additional names based on their financial participation in the syndicate. If they lost money, well, claims were paid out from the funds those three individuals had put into the pool of money to pay claims. And if that wasn't enough, those three people were responsible for paying the additional money needed. You can imagine how well or how badly those personal relationships could go based on the underwriter's choices of what to insure. And obviously, when you only have three people putting money into the kitty, you are limited in how much insurance you can write. Cuthbert Heath, who I mentioned in the San Francisco episode, was a famous underwriter at Lloyd's in the late 19th and early 20th century. You may remember him saying after the San Francisco earthquake to, quote, pay all of our policyholders in full, irrespective of the terms of their policies, unquote. Cuthbert wanted to bring in more names to his syndicate so that he could write more business, and his decision changed the market for everyone else. 
By 1900, most underwriters were writing for 10 or more names. As syndicates wanted to write more business and write higher limits of insurance on that business, they had to bring in more names to provide capital. But before the 1950, most external names, those are the individual investors who have no involvement in Lloyd's other than that investment, were very, very wealthy. The financial burden to become a name was significant, and most were members of the peerage, wealthy tycoons, or even well-off politicians, who were often peers or tycoons or both. While the majority of names were British citizens, some 85 countries were represented, though again, it took a lot of money to participate. In 1950, you would need approximately £75,000 to invest in order to become a name at Lloyd's. This is like $1.3 million in U.S. dollars today. That money would be held by Lloyd's on your behalf, and in all likelihood, you would not participate in just one syndicate, but several. The investment a name makes at Lloyd's is usually spread among several syndicates, which makes sense. It spreads your potential risk out, which is good for the name. The decision to participate in a syndicate, though, wasn't one you were able to make on your own. The whole process of becoming a name at Lloyd's was handled on your behalf by someone called a member's agent, and they were the ones that decided what syndicates you would be assigned to. You really had to trust that they had your best interest at heart, which wasn't always the case. As the 20th century continued, Lloyd's syndicates wanted and needed more capacity to write insurance, and the only way to get more money, as they saw it, was to get more names. In 1977, there were about 10,000 names. By 1984, there were 23,000. It more than doubled in less than 10 years. And by 1988, just four years later, more than 9,000 additional names had been added for a total of 32,000 people participating as names at Lloyd's. So in less than 10 years, the number of names at Lloyd's had gone from 10,000 to 32,000. This wasn't because there were a lot more rich people wanting to participate at Lloyd's. The requirements to join Lloyd's as a name had been slashed quite significantly. The amount of money you would need to participate as an external name was eventually reduced to 35,000 pounds, and this could even be supplied by a note against the value of your home. So someone who owned a middle-class home in London could participate quite easily if they wanted. They didn't have to have 35,000 pounds in cash on hand to join. By 1970, a working name, so someone who worked at Lloyd's in some capacity, could join with only 3,000 pounds. Basically, an investment that had once been something only the very wealthy could participate in became something within the reach of many, many people. And it was an attractive investment in the 70s and 80s for a number of reasons. One was that you could make money not just on the profits you received from the syndicates you participated in, but you could also make money off the interest on your funds being held at Lloyd's. And it seemed like a really good investment. I mean, average returns in the 60s and 70s were £20,000 a year. Why not get involved? Well, first of all, there was that unlimited liability thing, which didn't apparently sink in. And to some extent, Lloyd's didn't do a great job of really hammering this home to the people as the numbers of names increased so quickly. And there was the fact that as a name, you didn't get to pick the syndicates you participated in. How did you know if that syndicate was a good one? That the underwriter was someone that you trusted? That the type of risks they insured were ones you were comfortable with? While this had always been the case with names in the 20th century, before the financial requirements were decreased, it was probable that the names knew people at Lloyd's they could ask. Not surprisingly, there were peers working at Lloyd's as well as sons of tycoons and sons of politicians. And sons of sons of sons. 
Everyone at Lloyd's was connected to each other in some way, and if your father worked at Lloyd's, it was pretty likely you would probably do so too, and your cousin, and those six guys who went to Eaton with you. To some extent, this is still a thing at Lloyd's, but on a much lesser scale. But even asking around wasn't fail-safe. You couldn't really be sure who was good at their job and who was not. A former underwriter at Lloyd's, Stephen Bernhope, made this comment about underwriting at Lloyd's. The practice of underwriting at Lloyd's was for many years shrouded in an aura of mystique. It was to a large extent a state of affairs perpetuated by the practitioners guarding the secrets of their craft as zealously as any member of the magic circle protects that mysterious interaction of white bunny rabbits and top hats. Not to mention that the syndicates didn't release their results publicly at all until 1988, one of the many, many changes that came out of this whole debacle. You literally had no idea what those syndicates were doing. So now you had all these people who were investing at Lloyd's as names on syndicates they didn't know much about. And there were also people who were working at Lloyd's and were names too. And since the financial requirements for working names had dropped so much, it wasn't unusual for syndicates to award various employees with name status funded by the syndicate as a reward for hard work or an anniversary. For example, Betty Atkins was a secretary at an insurance brokerage that did business with Lloyd's. At her 25th work anniversary, the brokerage put up the money so she could join Lloyd's as a name. Since one assumes, hopefully, that both the insurance brokerage and Atkins knew that names had unlimited liability, we also know that the insurance brokerage bought something called a personal stop-loss policy for Betty. This is an insurance policy that would protect her in case losses from her investment were larger than expected. Well, sort of. I couldn't find the details of this particular stop-loss policy, but many of the ones written for names at Lloyd's during this time were typically written to cover losses in excess of a deductible and were capped at a maximum loss of 100000 or so. So basically, Betty would have been on the hook for a certain amount of money if the syndicate was in serious trouble paying its losses, the deductible, and then the stop-loss policy would kick in. But then, if those losses Betty was responsible for exceeded 100,000 pounds, she would be on the hook for anything over that amount to infinity. Of course, no one at Lloyd's thought that was even a possibility, because also they were going to sell off those policies to another insurance company and get that IBNR off their books, right? If she was really lucky, she got assigned to what was called a baby syndicate. This was something that a lot of working underwriters got access to that external names did not. Say that an underwriter was responsible for a larger syndicate with many names, but that underwriter also had a second syndicate, a baby syndicate, where he was a name and also a couple of his buddies were also names. Baby syndicates tended to have very few names participating, which is partly where I think the name comes from. If an underwriter had a very good risk come across his desk, a risk he thought would definitely provide profit, guess which syndicate he would assign it to. If you said the baby syndicate, you would be absolutely right. In 1978, more than half of all syndicates were being operated in parallel, meaning that two syndicates would have the same underwriters and would write the same types of business, but one might have 100 names and the other might have three. I found an example that in 1981, one baby syndicate with three members received £38,000 in profit for every £10,000 in premium they wrote. That's an amazing return, more than doubling your money. And because the underwriter was deciding what syndicate those high-performing insurance policies would be assigned to, 
That meant the process was inherently unfair to external names, those people who were just investors and didn't work at Lloyd's. Not only would the external names that were not on the baby syndicate miss out on those amazing returns, it also meant that the larger syndicates were getting only risks with worse risk profiles and returns. They weren't getting those better risks to balance the worse risks out. It put those external names at even more risk for a catastrophic financial loss. This all came down to something I found in almost every book or article about this crisis that wasn't written by Lloyd's. Basically, that Lloyd's did not recognize that they should operate in the best interests of their investors. There's a long-standing idea within insurance, dates back to the early beginnings of marine insurance long before Lloyd's even existed, that insurance companies should operate in, quote, utmost good faith, unquote. It was obvious that this was not happening at Lloyd's. Was it a consequence of Lloyd's being so mysterious and deliberately opaque to outsiders? Was it a consequence of how interconnected and intergenerational Lloyd's had become with so many working at Lloyd's in high-level roles and in underwriting roles who had familial and long-term personal relationships with other people who worked at Lloyd's? Was it just the money and just greed at its root? Or the fact that to some extent Lloyd's had operated in these ways for many years and no one had cared? I think it was probably a little bit of all of these things, and in addition, the rapid growth really exacerbated all these tendencies. Lloyd's had scandals in public issues before this, to be sure, but it seemed like they were brushed off as the actions of, quote, rogue underwriters, unquote, and not indicative of Lloyd's operation as a whole. And to be sure, the fact that Lloyd's is a collection of individual syndicates operating independently under the umbrella of Lloyd's does give that idea some merit. But this was like a pile of tinder waiting for a spark. And asbestos was that spark. At first, the asbestos claims didn't seem like a big deal. Since Lloyd's writes a lot of excess business, as we discussed, excess insurance policies sit above a primary insurance policy. The first insurance carriers to see asbestos claims would have been those primary insurance policy companies, which were mostly U.S.-based. An insurance company writing excess insurance generally relies on the insurance company writing the primary policy to handle claims when they're first reported. The primary insurance policy would be the first policy responsible to pay the claim, and so the primary insurance company would handle the claim, including litigation. It would generally only be at the point where the claim looked like it was going to be larger than that primary policy limit that the excess policy would get involved or in some cases even be notified of the claim. So as asbestos claims came in and were denied or successfully thrown out of court before Borrell, Lloyd's wouldn't have been too concerned. And again, since each syndicate operated independently, they might not have shared information about asbestos claims with each other. Maybe one syndicate had a few asbestos claims and decided they would avoid writing that business in the future, but another syndicate might see it as a great opportunity and would have no idea why other syndicates were getting rid of those risks. And some syndicates would also have subscribed to what was a common idea within Lloyd's, and indeed this idea persists within insurance as a whole even today, though I must say based on personal experience I disagree wholeheartedly that there is no such thing as a bad risk, only a bad rate a.k.a. if I can get enough money, I'll write anything. While this might be true in concept, in practice it's unlikely you'll ever get enough money. It sure wasn't the case here. But even so, it does appear that many of those at Lloyd's had their heads in the sand about potential exposure of asbestos and the potential size of the claims. One member at Lloyd's saw no issue with asbestos as no claims had been reported to him directly. 
But by the late 1970s, at least 5,000 asbestos cases had been reported to syndicates at Lloyd's. And it was going to get worse for Lloyd's because while U.S.-based insurers had started putting on exclusions for asbestos as early as the mid-1970s, Lloyd's continued to write excess policies with very loose policy wording for some time. And even after the heads at Lloyd's decided to create a group called the Asbestos Working Party, a group of higher-ranked Lloyd's members who were tasked with investigating the potential for asbestos-related claims and then to come up with a strategy for handling them. But they didn't exactly advertise their findings to the names. And they certainly didn't come down with strong suggestions for the syndicates, like, for example, excluding asbestos exposures on insurance policies going forward. Some underwriters actually saw asbestos as an opportunity, not a problem. An underwriter named Richard Outhwaite, who specialized in buying the policies of other syndicates, he was that guy you sold your IBNR to by paying him to take it, took over 50 policies in 1982 that had asbestos exposure. I'm going to assume he was one of the people who believed there's no bad risk, only a bad rate. He also had no background in writing general liability exposures and very little understanding of asbestos, but as he apparently said, he knew the underwriters on those accounts very well, so you know the story. He brought in 24.3 million pounds in premium for those policies. That's like 30 million in U.S. dollars or adjusted for inflation would be something like 88 million U.S. dollars today which, frankly, would have been an enormous deal at the time. I'm sure that for some people at Lloyd's, and probably for Oathweight, he was seen as a rock star for writing that much premium. But these policies weren't a good deal after all. It turned out that he was assuming almost 80% of the market's exposure to asbestos. And it's considered, no shock here, the most disastrous deal ever written at Lloyd's. Within five years, his losses on these policies were so bad, he had to go to his names and ask for money. My notes say he first asked for an additional 100% of their investment, but what he really needed was something like 1,000% of their initial investment. And obviously, he wasn't the only underwriter at Lloyd's to have asbestos claims become a major problem. Not surprisingly, the names were furious as they were being asked to provide more and more funds to cover losses on the syndicates they had been invested in. Many alleged that Lloyds had deliberately misled them about the potential liability around the asbestos issue and also about the exposure they had taken on when they first became names at Lloyds. Some of them, I think, were learning for the very first time that not only did they have unlimited liability, but even if they died, their estate would be held accountable. And while some syndicates were able to release their names from further responsibility by selling off their policies to people like Richard Oathwaite, who then had his own set of names to contend with, if the policies couldn't be sold off, those names couldn't leave Lloyd's. They were on the hook until all of those policy claims were resolved. And things weren't being resolved quickly. There were actually still open asbestos claims from that time period today, decades later. Their anger wasn't helped by what could only be described as a real lack of sympathy from the higher-ups at Lloyd's, and in some cases, the underwriters themselves. David Coleridge was the chairman at Lloyd's, he's kind of like the CEO, in 1991, so well into the crisis even. And he said that, quote, we have the misfortune to blush very publicly. We had 30,000 members. Many of them will have lost money, and they make a lot of fuss. The insurance industry worldwide is having a very tough time. Most of the people who are bitching and whining are doing it because they don't like losing. I understand that. 
It's human nature to only want to win. No one has been swindled, and it had nothing to do with unlimited liability. It's simply pure losses, unquote. P.S. He actually made 10 million pounds from his own investment at Lloyd's. As you can imagine, this didn't exactly go over well with the names. Not everybody had that same opinion, or at least didn't voice it publicly, but they all realized that something very bad was happening at Lloyd's, and they just weren't sure where it might end. James Sinclair, the managing director of Willis Faber and Dumas, remember Willis Faber was the broker who arranged the insurance for the Titanic, said that, quote, Lloyd's recent history is an outrageous disgrace with greed, bad management, incompetence, and catastrophes bringing the market to its knees. Lloyd's has been bewitched, battered, and bewildered to such an extent that its capacity to survive is in real doubt, unquote. And some people thought the entire mess was just desserts for names who didn't know what they were investing in, or thought that Lloyd's had been tempting the devil for some time. Max Hastings, the editor at the Daily Telegraph, famously quipped that, Whenever life has looked a little glum in the last year or so, I have been able to console myself with the reflection that I am not a member of Lloyd's. The losses at Lloyd's were a disaster, and names were paying the price, mostly external names, to be sure, but some working names, too. Betty Atkins, the secretary who had received name status from her employer, was in her 70s, and she was in no position to pay the amounts she was being asked to provide. Her stop-loss policy was long since gone. People lost their homes, and some names even committed suicide rather than face the financial hardship, which unfortunately didn't help since the estate of the name would then be held liable. What had initially seemed like a good retirement investment was now ruining people's lives. The scandal was so huge and the losses to names and to the syndicate so monumental that when Lloyds tried to propose various and often sweeping changes, no one could agree on anything. Lawsuits were everywhere, suing everyone. Richard Outhwaite was sued by his names, not a surprise, and settled out of court in 1992 via a large payment. I would love to know what that was. He wasn't the only one in legal trouble from Lloyd's, and it wasn't limited to just Britain. Names at Lloyd's who were U.S. citizens brought lawsuits in the U.S., and the U.S. government, particularly the SEC, started looking very carefully at how Lloyd's was transacting business. As you may recall, while Lloyd's is based in London, the majority of the risks they insure are U.S. companies. Clearly, despite all the chaos, some agreement was going to have to be made in order for Lloyd's to continue to operate. It wasn't until 1995 that the members of Lloyd's finally settled on a framework that everyone, mostly, could agree on. The Reconstruction and Renewal Plan, as it was called, basically separated Lloyd's as of that moment in 1995 going forward from any liabilities in the past. Those liabilities, the asbestos exposure, but also other exposures that were starting to cause serious issues like pollution, were taken off the hands of the individual syndicates and put into one company called Equitas. I have to read the first line of the Wikipedia entry because it makes me laugh. Equitas is a group of companies that was formed in 1996 to assume by way of reinsurance the vast and crippling liabilities that accumulated in the syndicates at Lloyd's of London on insurance policies written on the 1992 and all prior years of account. That sounds great. But uh, who was putting up all this money to handle the claims? Someone was going to have to figure out how to pay for all of this. Again, as I was reading about this, one of the books I read mentioned that it was very difficult to figure out the old liabilities, in part due to poor record-keeping by the syndicates. And of course, no one really knew what the financial cost of things like asbestos would be down the road. 
In the end, it was basically required of every syndicate to place business written in 1992 and a year prior into Equitas. So remember how syndicates at Lloyd's have this process of taking policies from a particular year and then paying another insurer to assume responsibility for those policies, therefore absolving the original syndicate of any IBNR or future claims? Well, no matter what type of policies you wrote, with the exception of life insurance, you couldn't just shuffle those years off to anyone anymore. You had to pay Equitas to take them, based on what Lloyd's thought the cost of your potential claims might be. And those companies who had received premium to take over old policies in the past and had assumed the IBNR also had to pay Equitas to take those policies off their books. This ensured that Equitas wasn't just taking on the awful policies with asbestos exposures that were definitely going to need to pay out more money for claims in the future, but also maybe some stuff that wasn't so awful and wouldn't need more money for claims later on, and these less distressed policies would somehow balance out the disastrous stuff. This would also get the names out of the rest of their financial responsibilities, though in some cases they also had to pay a final settlement of some kind on these policies to do so, often in the range of £100,000. Not all of the names agreed to this. There's still a small group of several hundred names who are still in active litigation with Lloyds over this mess. Of course, that wasn't the only thing Lloyds had to do to rebuild public trust and trust with their investors. There were a couple of other things that this reconstruction and renewal plan did to help Lloyds recover. They changed the structure of Lloyds so that corporate members could join in place of the traditional names, with limited liability, no less. They halted the further entry of any new names with unlimited liability. Additional market oversight and financial requirements were also put into place. It changed the makeup and operations of Lloyds in major ways, and while much of Lloyds' traditions do remain, those who write insurance and those who invest at Lloyd's has changed immensely. I'd like to say that after the asbestos crisis, things changed within the insurance industry and Lloyd's, but to be honest, we are still in the asbestos crisis even today. If you watch daytime TV, you're well aware that asbestos hasn't gone away. Commercials for legal firms asking if you have mesothelioma, one of those several asbestos-specific diseases, are common billboards along the highway too. Lawyers still see the potential for substantial legal fees. Workers at the World Trade Center, construction workers working on older buildings, military personnel, auto mechanics, along with all the other people who worked around asbestos in the 20th century and are still alive, may have exposure and potentially disease. Numerous attempts in the U.S. and Canada to establish some kind of general payment fund for asbestos claims, to free up the court system, and to put a definitive number on the money needed from insurance and manufacturing companies have been shot down over the years, although other countries have done this successfully. A couple of things came out of the asbestos crisis from an insurance policy standpoint to attempt to mitigate future catastrophes like the asbestos claims catastrophe. First, while the standard general liability policy is written on an occurrence basis, the industry recognized that some products, like asbestos, just couldn't be written that way going forward. Sure, insurance companies started to exclude asbestos, but to be honest, this is not entirely industry-wide. And in some cases, just excluding an exposure with a long tail wasn't always the best way to deal with the issue. Not to mention any exclusion had to hold up in court, which wasn't always known until you went to court, and insurance companies would rather just avoid that all the way around. As a result, the industry created a general liability form in the mid-1980s that wasn't written on an occurrence basis. It was written on a claims-made basis. Now you didn't have that long tail on the individual policy like you would with the occurrence basis form. You had a different kind of tail. 
It didn't matter when the injury happened. The only thing that mattered was the date of the actual claim. So someone writing a policy from January 1st, 2021 to January 1st, 2022 might have a claim made on June 1st, 2021 from an injury that happened in 1985. That claim would be paid from that 2122 policy, and there would be no expectation of a 1985 policy needing to be dug up and litigated. There are some caveats, to be sure. Most of these policies have a date limit on how far back injuries can go, maybe 10 years. This depends greatly on the type of exposure that a particular customer has, as well as how their prior insurance program was structured. But the bigger problem is that they're hard to sell. And for every insurance carrier who insists on using a claims-made policy form, there is probably another carrier who is willing to use an occurrence-based form. And for the insured, the occurrence-based form is generally seen as more favorable and providing more coverage. The other thing that appeared is more complicated, more fun, and more insane. It's a thing called the Bermuda form. This is a bizarre hybrid liability form, part occurrence, part claims made, created by a group of insurance professionals and lawyers who got together from a bunch of different insurance companies and brokerages to come up with something really new. And this form was meant to manage the truly catastrophic billion-dollar claim messes for high-hazard consumer products like pharmaceuticals, breast implants, chemicals even worse than asbestos, and the stuff no underwriter wants to touch with a 10-foot pole. It's crazy fascinating. And it's especially unique because there is no way to test the policy wording in the United States court system. It can't be litigated here, according to the terms of the policy, which brokers and insurance companies love. You don't see it used very often, and it is crazy complicated, but I think it's amazing. The big change for Lloyd's, other than Equitas, was the almost total elimination of individual names. Prior to the 90s, very few syndicates were owned or financially supported by insurance companies. They were supported by external and working names. Today, most syndicates are financially backed by actual insurance companies, many of them U.S.-based insurance companies. Almost every U.S.-based insurance company I have worked for in my 20-year career has had a Lloyd's syndicate as part of its company. There are pluses and minuses to this, to be sure, but it's changed the flavor of Lloyd's forever. As I said before, we are still in the midst of the asbestos crisis. That's because of two things. One, asbestos is not banned in the United States. And two, we keep finding companies who aren't being honest about asbestos in their products. Are you as shocked by that as I was? In fact, the U.S. is the only industrial democracy that has not banned asbestos. Congress and the EPA have tried several times only to fail. Asbestos-containing products are more tightly controlled these days, to be sure, and there are only a few categories of products where asbestos use is still allowed, but there has never been a total ban of asbestos in the United States. Currently, I believe only building materials, protective clothing, and replacement brake linings are asbestos-containing. While I don't have a current number for the amount of asbestos products in the market, I did find a number from 1998 that said in the U.S. 300 million of asbestos products were either imported or exported that year. It's no longer mined here. That's been outsourced to other countries like Russia, Kazakhstan, and China. And we're still discovering exposures where we hadn't considered them. As I mentioned previously, asbestos fireproofing material had been sprayed into the World Trade Center, both buildings, back when they were erected. The fireproofing was sprayed up to the 40th floor in one tower and the 64th floor in the other tower. When 9-11 happened and the buildings collapsed, all that asbestos fiber was sent back into the air. 
Of course, asbestos wasn't the only chemical released by the collapse of the towers, but smartly. After 9-11, there was a huge fast push for a federal compensation program to head off potential litigation. Had that been done for asbestos, like it had been done for coal miners, something called the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, the asbestos situation might have been different. And then just a few years ago, Johnson & Johnson was embroiled in a multi-district class action lawsuit with some 30,000 and more claimants alleging that their talc products included asbestos. Some claimants have also sued directly, with one woman in California receiving a $26.4 million verdict in the court system against J&J. And of course, we have no idea how much of that she actually received in the end. Now, mind you, Johnson & Johnson never admitted that their talc products contained asbestos, but science seems to suggest that talc use could be linked to some cancers, and apparently J&J was not unaware of this possibility. One of the more damning documents that came to light during the discovery process for all these lawsuits was a study J&J had done in the 1950s, which involved injecting prisoners, mostly black men, with both asbestos and talc to see if talc behaved the same way asbestos did. I just, I mean, I am a naturally disillusioned person. Uh, It's a quality that I think has made me a good underwriter. And so generally speaking, when I read these things, I just, I don't know what to say about that. It's horrible. Well, I guess at least now you know about it too. I guess there's that. In 2019, Johnson & Johnson indicated that they would create a settlement fund of $400 million for these talc-related suits, and that they would use bankruptcy like Johns Manville and other asbestos companies to mitigate further financial responsibility. Unlike Johns Manville, though, J&J wouldn't go bankrupt. They were going to do a fancy legal maneuver called, funnily enough, the Texas Two-Step, which basically allowed them to put all their liabilities into a separate company and then declare that company bankrupt. Whether they can actually do that is something that the courts are still fighting over. In the meantime, J&J pulled all its talc products from the market and has made some settlements with claimants, but again, has admitted no liability at all. Funnily enough, Lloyd's was also able to shed its asbestos exposures. In 2006, Lloyd's took Equitas and sold it off to Warren Buffett's company Berkshire Hathaway to an insurance company owned by Berkshire called National Indemnity Company. They renamed it Resolute Management Services Limited. Though maybe sold it off to Berkshire is the wrong way to put it. Lloyd's definitely paid for it to go away. While we're still waiting on the final numbers for the asbestos claims crisis, we do know the following already. Almost a million people in the United States have filed asbestos claims. Almost 9,000 plaintiffs have been named in lawsuits. Somewhere between three and 4,000 names at Lloyd's were bankrupted, and something like 60 companies that were sued for asbestos claims went bankrupt. As of the early 2000s, total spending on asbestos claims was something like $70 billion. Estimates seem to suggest that when all is said and done, the total number will probably be more like $275 billion. And of that money, only about 40% will go to claimants. The rest will be eaten up as operating costs and lawyers' fees. Amazingly, I actually can only find one solid reference to a U.S. insurance company going bankrupt as a direct result of asbestos claims. That wasn't even a particularly large company, but it's safe to say of that $275 billion that we estimate will eventually be paid out, 
a lot of that will come from insurance. From an insurance versus history standpoint, this one is loud and clear. History kicked insurance's butt here. No two ways about it. One academic writing about the asbestos crisis was pretty critical, with good reason, of the insurance industry, but he also made a great point when he stated that asbestos was a baptism of fire for modern liability exposures, and as a result revealed the weaknesses in the general liability policy that insurance companies could address going forward. For his part, he didn't think another asbestos was possible. I would argue that he is wrong. While it is true that every time the general liability policy and the endorsements that attach to the policy to amend it is litigated, we get clearer on what it does and doesn't do, I think we have to recognize that there is a very small group of people at the top of the insurance company chain who deeply understand and draft insurance wording. Somewhere in the middle, there are people who do their best to understand the policy and how it works. And then there are other people in the industry who often pretend to understand the implications of the wording and don't actually understand it, or people who don't bother to read the form at all. And on top of that, the companies that insurance policies cover are more complex and do more things than ever. It's very rare to find a company that makes one or two products using only a handful of ingredients or materials. More likely, you have a diversified company who may do 100 different things, and it's hard to know the exposures of every single one. Frankly, how many people who were involved in insuring companies that handled asbestos had even realized that some of those companies had that exposure? I'm guessing that many of them did not. All we can hope is that insurance learns from its mistakes and is smarter going forward. Identify the next asbestos and figure out how to insure it or exclude it so that insurance companies aren't facing massive losses for an exposure they didn't expect or price for. Okay then, so what's the next asbestos? It's hard to say. Insurance companies are always looking for the next thing while also being extremely low-key about it. There are a number of substances over the years that jump out to me, lead being the one I always come back to. But a short list would probably contain the following, mercury, polyvinyl chlorides, diet drugs, other pharmaceutical medications, and a couple of things that you might have to Wikipedia later nanotubes, and neonicotinoid pesticides. You could argue that maybe opioids are the next asbestos, but there just weren't as many manufacturers or opioids to go after. There's no 8,400 claimants here. And opioids aren't in multiple industries in the same way that asbestos was. In the end, asbestos changed a lot of things. And who knows, there might be more in store for the insurance industry going forward. Insurance always seems to recover, even after such a major KO. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Insurance versus History. Please help other people find this podcast by sharing it with your friends and colleagues and rating and reviewing my podcast where you can, especially on Apple Podcasts. And give me a shout out if you have comments. You can find me at insurancevshistory at gmail.com. And as always, a huge thanks to my editor and talented voiceover actor, Zach Stinnett. You should hire him. His information, along with links and book suggestions about this topic, in case you're interested in learning more, can be found in my show notes at insurancevshistory.libsyn.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something. (music) 